Too many Americans view the struggle for civil rights as over, as a thing of the past, as ancient history, instead of viewing civil rights as an ongoing effort to, as the great James Baldwin put it, achieve our country, to finally live up to the ideals of justice and democracy, equality and fairness that are enshrined in the founding documents of our country, but still not fully realized. One of the areas where we see the biggest injustices and the clearest manifestations of modern day racism is with pollution, environmental racism, ports, refineries, fossil power plants, chemical manufacturing, landfills, I could go on, are to this day disproportionately cited in communities comprised mostly of Black, Latino, and or Indigenous people. One of the very first researchers in the world on this topic is right here in Texas, Dr. Robert Bullard of Texas Southern University and the eponymous Bullard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice. His groundbreaking research in the 1970s showed that over 80% of landfills in Houston were cited in Black communities, even though the population of Houston at the time was only 25% of the total population. He extended his analysis to Dallas, to Cancer Row in Louisiana, and beyond, and found the same pattern. Long after the practice was illegal, redlining, banks literally drawing red lines on a map, forced Black and Hispanic Texans into areas with higher pollution, and through restrictive covenants, ensured that suburbs, blissfully far away from industrial facilities, would remain all white. Obviously, the most egregious of those practices do not continue. But the legacies of those practices are still very much with us today. Dr. Bullard and I talked about the efforts to address historical injustice and environmental racism and how some refuse or seem incapable of acknowledging its existence. We also talked about how to talk about environmental justice in a way that broadens the tent, that brings people in instead of putting them on the defensive, including focusing on the benefits to everyone that occur when environmental injustice is addressed. Too much of the discourse around environmental racism and justice comes down to us and them. There is no them. It's only us. And our failure to see it that way hurts all of us. When pollution is reduced anywhere, we all benefit in lower health care costs and clean air and water for all. I learned a lot from this conversation and from Dr. Bullard's foundational text, Dumping in Dixie, which I highly recommend everyone read. I look forward to having more podcast episodes like this one in the future. As always, please let me know your thoughts and suggestions for the podcast in the comments. Please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And while this episode is free, about half of our episodes are for paid subscribers only. Please become one today at DougLewin.com. That's D-O-U-G-L-E-W-I-N.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Dr. Bullard, welcome to the Energy Capital Podcast. It's a privilege and honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Let's start just by, if you could just explain to the audience your, your work, your, your purpose, your mission, what, what, do you, what do you do and what have you done throughout your career? Well, I am a, a sociologist by training, and I'm an environmental sociologist. And I, uh, my appointment at uh, Texas Southern University uh, is in the Urban Planning Department, Department of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy. And um, for more than four decades, I've worked on, researched, written about, worked with communities around the issues of environment, uh, health, uh, issues around um land use, planning, et cetera. And my first job out of graduate school, as a matter of fact, in 1976, way back then, was at Texas Southern University. And uh, my concentration uh, back then uh, was housing and residential segregation and, uh, and looking at uh, the access to opportunity. And so what I've tried to do is to marry research, facts, data and science with action and uh and that's what i've i've tried to do and and over the last uh, four and a half decades i've uh i've written 18 books and i tell everybody it's just one book but don't tell anybody <laughs> one book 18 chapters but really long chapters yes long chapters and 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 it, and it covers the idea that 
fairness, justice, and equity, whether I'm dealing with housing, transportation, uh, climate, uh, the issues around health, you name it, it's, it's connecting those dots. Will you tell us a little bit about, you were, you were born in Elba, Alabama, about 80 miles south of Montgomery uh, in the late 1940s. So your formative years, your childhood were during the, the 1950s, obviously with the, the bus boycotts and the civil rights movement. I mean, you, you were growing up right there. Can you talk a little bit about that, that experience? Well, yes, I, I grew up in uh, Alabama uh, in a time when segregation was the uh, was the law of the land. You know, I was born in 1946, and the second grade, um, 1954, uh, uh, Brown v. Board of Education uh, declared uh, Jim Crow segregation unconstitutional. And so, in my elementary school, my middle school, and my high school, it was. Uh, segregated. It was all black. I had all black teachers, very good teachers. Uh, um, some of my teachers had master's degrees and a couple of them had PhDs. Uh, but it was a, a period of time when um, uh, the civil rights movement was in its heyday. You know, the Montgomery bus boycott in the 50s. And I graduated from high school in 1964 and went to Alabama A&M University. Uh, Elba is at on the bottom of the state of Alabama, close to Florida, right? You know, about, about 40, 50 miles from the line, Florida line. And uh, I went to Alabama A&M University, uh, which is a predominantly uh, black university, HBCU, located in Huntsville, 300 miles north of Elba. So I had to pass Troy State University, which was 29 miles from my house. Auburn University is about 65 miles. Uh, University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa is about 95, 100 miles and going all the way up north. So it was segregated. Uh, and so um, the idea of, of growing up uh, with, uh, with the idea that we were uh, taught to, to excel, uh, we were taught to uh, read books and, and to uh, and get a good education. That was my uh, grandparents' Uh, my mother and father uh, really instilled in us uh, education is something that no one can take away from you so, and and have good work ethic. Yep. Yep. So and and I just want to talk just a couple minutes more about this, partly because I'm, I'm reading this excellent book by Isabel Wilkerson right now, The Warmth of Other Sons, about the great migration from the South. And I just want to I want to dive into this a little bit more because I don't think people often understand we we. We hear about segregation and we and we watch the documentaries when we're in school and stuff like this. But this wasn't like segregation, almost like Jim Crow segregation was was something else, right? I mean, you had to step off the sidewalk. You couldn't look at somebody the wrong way. Lynchings were common. Just violence for random infractions was severe. Did you experience anything like that growing up or see anything like that growing up? And I'm also interested how those experiences growing up in Alabama sort of led you to the work you've, you've done throughout your career? Well, you know, I, I didn't uh, experience any lynchings or see any of that horrific uh, uh, kinds of killings, but it was there. And uh, the idea of, of you are part of a larger movement. Uh, my uh, grandmother voted because we owned land, you know, 10 years out of slavery, 1875, my uh, grandmother, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather uh, great were able to acquire 240 acres of timberland in South Alabama. And so we had land, we had property, and, and my grandmother uh, and, my, and my parents voted, and they were Republican. And they would put on their Sunday uh, clothes and vote, uh, but everybody couldn't vote. And, and it was um, a period of time when, when uh, in Elba, uh, we could vote because we were not in that concentrated black belt uh, like in Selma and, and, and uh, Perry County and, and Sumter County in that area. Coffee County, we're, uh, blacks only made up, I guess, about 10, 15% of the population. We were not a huge population, so I guess we were considered not a threat per se. But in terms of, of having... Books uh, that were two years old with other 
uh, kids' names uh, in them, secondhand books uh, or second edition. Uh, our live, we didn't, I, I couldn't go to the library uh, because the library was, was for whites. I couldn't go to the swimming pool because the swimming pool was for whites. Uh, there was no paved streets in my neighborhood or street lights um, or sewer, water line. So it was segregated uh, to the core. But, but my parents, as I said before, instilled in us that uh, education is a key. When the, when the school closed, the library at our school closed. But that didn't stop uh, some of us from uh, excelling, learning, and understanding that we have to uh, achieve, we have to do better, and we have to overcome. So, so, so instilled in me in an early age uh, is, is the, the idea of, of wanting to uh, uh, be somebody and to do something in a way that, that you excel. Uh, my, during my sophomore year at Alabama A&M University, Vivian Malone uh, left uh, Alabama A&M and went to the University of Alabama to integrate the University of Alabama. She came from Alabama A&M University. What year was that? That was 1965. And that was the same year that, that, uh, that the, uh, the, voting, the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act, you know, in the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge. I was in college doing all of that time. And we would participate in marches and demonstrations. And, but at the same time, the, 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 the whole atmosphere around us um, was one of horrific uh, oppression. Uh, during my senior year, I graduated in May of 1968, and, and Dr. King was killed in April 4th, 1968. And, the, and of course, there were, there were all kinds of protests, demonstrations, there were riots, and seven days after Dr. King was killed. President Johnson uh, was able to get the Congress to pass the Fair Housing Act uh, of 1968. So there were there were the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Voters' Rights Act, 1968 uh, Fair Housing Act. So there were a lot of uh, of movement, a lot of breaking down those uh, those artificial racial barriers as it relates to the law. But it was still, uh, even though I graduated from high school in 1964 uh, and ride the Greyhound bus from, Al from Elba, Alabama, uh, to Troy, Alabama, to Montgomery, Alabama, to Birmingham, Alabama, to Huntsville, Alabama, the, the signs that said uh, black, white in the bus station had been taken down. But, but the fact that it was still segregated, the signs were down and the white... Uh, the, the white waiting room and the black waiting room and the and the signs had come down from the from the water fountains, but those signs remained uh, through the '60s, the invisible signs, not the uh, written out signs, but in terms of on the buses, uh, in the train stations, in the waiting rooms. I mean, it was a period of time when you know that that you had to resist. Now that's the era that I grew up in. In 1968, I had graduated from Alabama A&M. I got a job in St. Louis because I could not find a job in Alabama. And so I had to go. I went all the way to St. Louis, and I taught school from August until December, and I got drafted. And I spent two years in the United States Marine Corps and got out of the Marine Corps in 1970, went back to school, got my master's from Atlanta University, and got my Ph.D. from Iowa State University in 1976, and, uh, and I moved to Houston. Let's talk about the move to Houston. Before, before we do, I just, I just want to say, and I, I think it's really important as a, as a setup to this conversation for folks to understand, because I think too often, particularly young people, and you can define that however you want. I mean, like, you know, even I was, I was born in the, I'm not young. I was born in the 1970s, right? So, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, you don't see the overt, racism and so sometimes the the under the like let's call it more sometimes it's not subtle at all so maybe that's the the wrong word but the the more sort of systemic racism you don't necessarily see it it's not often pointed out but to think that you are a, a man who has 
lived a quarter of your life before the civil rights era. A lot of times people think this is so long ago. It's not that long ago. It's, it's it, in, in the course of history, it's like, it's just a minute ago, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so this yeah. is, I think, what what has, in in my view anyway, what has defined your career is is bringing this awareness that there are patterns of discrimination. So you talked about housing. You know, there's obviously even into the 80s and 90s, and in some places even to today, there's restrictive covenants that yes. keep people from living in certain places, and then that, of course, leads to environmental racism where there are facilities that nobody wants around them that are concentrated particularly in black communities black and brown communities native american communities etc so you come to houston in the in the 70s and you're not there very long in 76 and you're not there very long before this landmark case in 1979 about uh, landfill sites. Can you talk a little bit about, talk, I'd love to hear about the case, but also Houston in the 1970s. What, what brought you there? What, what was the environment like? And, and then talk a little bit about this, this case and which I think is what kind of brought you into the environmental justice work, which that didn't really exist as a, as a term maybe at the time, but anyway. Talk a little bit about Houston in the late 70s, if you would. Yeah, well, uh, Lena Bakiva Bullard and I, uh, my wife at the time, uh, moved from uh, Michigan in uh, 1976. Uh, I'm from Alabama, and she was from Michigan. It was cold up there. I'm an Alabama boy. I'm want, I want to come back south. And so I convinced her to uh, let's move to Houston. And I, I got a job at Texas Southern University. Um, as an assistant professor of sociology, and I convinced uh, the university to give me a split appointment, half-time teaching and half-time research, uh, the director of research at the Urban Resources Center that was uh, directed by uh, Dr. Neil Miladey at the time. And so my, my area, as I said before, was housing and residential segregation. And that was 1976, and uh, three years out of graduate school, 1979, Linda came home one day and said, Bob, I've uh, taken a lawsuit and, and I've sued the city of Houston, Harris County, and the state of Texas. And I said, you did what? And I, I, she said, yeah, I sued uh, the, the state because this company is trying to put a landfill, uh, get a permit to put a landfill in the middle of this predominantly black middle class suburban community in Houston, northeast Houston. And I said, uh, I said, uh, you sued the state of Texas. I said, you know, I work for a state university. She said, yeah. Uh, and so she said, I need, she said, I just, I, I just filed a temporary restraining order to stop, try to stop this permit. And I need somebody to uh, do a study and look at and find where all the landfills, incinerators, uh, garbage dumps are located in, the Houston, in Houston from the very beginning. I need somebody to put it on a map and then uh, where the facilities are and then tell who lives around uh, those facilities. I said, you need a sociologist. She says, that's what you are, right? And I said, yeah, but. And so she convinced me to do the study. I had 10 students in my research methods class at Texas Southern University, and I told my students, I said, students, we have a research project. Now understand, Linda developed the legal theory behind environmental racism. It was Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation. Bean, Margaret Bean, et al. But the, the Northwood Manor was the neighborhood. It was a middle-class suburban neighborhood of homeowners. 85% of the people own their home. It was not a, a ghetto, a poverty pocket. This was a really stable black middle-class neighborhood. Nothing out there except trees, houses, and black people. And this company was, was, uh, was planning on putting a landfill out there. And so... They hired Linda, and I got uh, drafted, arm-twisted, into doing the study. And th there were no GIS mapping. There was no database. There was no Google. There was none of that. There was no laptop, iPhones, iPad. It was ancient. And my, I developed the research design, the methodology. We went through old archives, old records. Um, we did... Uh, uh, had a maps, uh, census maps, and we used uh, uh, the system of, of magic markers and pens. 
and color coding. Yellow is yes, uh, yellow marker is coloring the census tract uh, or the block groups less than 10% minority. And green, uh, less than 25%. And then all the way up, 50% or more was red. And so it's was unusual as a sociologist to find something so amazing, so incredible uh, in terms of this was not random uh, in terms of all the pins that were the map pins representing landfills and incinerators uh, and garbage dumps located in the red. Uh, and, I, and and the long, the short version of this, when we looked at city owned uh, waste facilities, five out of five of the city owned landfills, six out of eight of the city owned incinerators, and three out of four of the privately owned landfills were located in predominantly black neighborhoods. So 82% of all the waste dumped in Houston from the 30s up until 1978, the waste was disposed in predominantly black neighborhoods, even though blacks made up only 25% of the population during the period of time of the study from the 30s up until 1978. Now that's an aha research in your face. We're in federal court. Um, it went to court in uh, from from seventy nine to eighty five. It went to court in eighty five. We lost in court, uh, and, and we went on appeal in nineteen eighty seven. We lost uh, on appeal from the Fifth Circuit. Uh, but the idea of losing in court, not able to show intentional discrimination, but to have articles uh, and research documented. Uh, in referee journals showing that this was not random, this was uh, uh, significant, uh, uh, significant uh, in a way that that you can't just show that this was just accidental. And because it was such overwhelming evidence, you know, I said, no, this has to be uh, carried on and expanded beyond Houston. That's how Dumping and Dixie came about. And and I highly recommend this book to to everybody, whether you're in this field or not it is it is accessible to to a general audience i got my copy right here all all, all marked up and this was really the first book if i'm not mistaken dr bullard this is the first book uh specifically on environmental racism is that right that's correct that book that book was the first book and it was not an easy uh lift to get it published i finished that book when i when i said i'm gonna take the houston case and see is this just Houston, because Houston is very unique. It's fourth largest city and the only major city that doesn't have zoning. And and I say, is this just happening in in Texas? And I went to Dallas and I looked at the lead smelters in Dallas. And it just so happened the lead smelters uh, just happened to be located in black and brown communities. Then I said, let's go to the Black Building, the, the nation's largest hazardous waste facility. It's located in the Alabama Black Belt in Sumter County, in ML, Alabama, that's 95 uh, percent black. Then I then I went to Louisiana Cancer Alley and found the same pattern in Louisiana. And then I said, and then uh, in 1982, uh, there was this uh, huge explosion uh, in Bhopal. And then there, and I went to West Virginia and found the same um, chemical plant that was the prototype for the Bhopal plant in West Virginia, Union Carbide plant. And so I had I had Institute West Virginia. And a lot of people didn't even know there were black people in West Virginia. Well, black people in West Virginia, in that little area in the Canal River Valley, had been there since, since the 1860s when West Virginia broke away from Virginia uh, and, didn't, and was not to become a slave state. And a few black people followed uh, freedom. So West Virginia, Cancer Alley, Dallas, the Alabama Black Belt, and Houston, that formed the basis for... Um, uh, dumping in Dixie. I finished the book in 1989. I couldn't get a publisher. I got nasty notes back from publishers saying, well, there's no such thing as environmental racism. The environment is neutral and uh, that everybody is, is, is uh, experienced the same. Everybody's treated the same. And then I lucked out. I guess I say luck, but it was to be uh, a publisher in Boulder, Colorado, Westview Press. And if you've never been to Boulder, there's something different about Boulder. Mountain high air, bean sprouts, tofu, marijuana. <laughs> they published my book, and Westview Press made it a textbook. And it got adopted across uh, universities and colleges across the country. And it took off as the book for 
uh, the issue around environmental justice, environmental racism. That was 1990. So I think there's a lot of people that would listen to this or listen to you and say, okay, well, well, that was 1990. Obviously, we're only, you know, a decade or two removed from the civil rights era. But here we are in 2024. Clearly, this kind of thing doesn't persist through to the present day. And, and I want to I want to read you a quote. Uh, it was a year and a half ago. Before the legislative session, for folks that don't know about this, there is something called the Sunset Advisory Commission, and they look at every state agency top to bottom, and they do a review, and they looked at the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the state-level EPA in Texas, and they, they, were, they wrote their report saying, too many people feel that the agency is not responsive to the needs of the people. It's too protective of industry. And at the hearing where they presented some of their findings, a lot of folks came from Houston to testify, and they talked about environmental racism. And the chairman of the TCQ got up to speak and was asked by uh, the senator from Houston, Boris Miles, about environmental racism. And he did acknowledge, and the, the wording is interesting here, a history of discrimination, right? The suggestion being history. It's, it's in the past. And then he said, environmental racism I'm not sure what to do with that term. And I found that really striking that after 40 years of scholarship on this, and it's obviously not just you, you you're a leader in this, but there's scholarship all over the place uh, at, at almost every, uh, you know, um, I mean, not just institutions of higher education, but in, I mean, there's, there's, there's wide awareness about this. And it was kind of striking to me that the head of the environmental organization for Texas didn't know what to do with that term. Can you talk about, A, what would you say to him, uh, and, and B, how is environmental racism different and how is it the same from what you saw when you were starting in this field in the, in the 1970s? Well, Doug, uh, we have to understand that environmental racism uh, occurred in Houston in the 70s when we were looking at the Houston uh, solid waste uh, landfill uh, studies, and it exists today in 2024. Uh, and it's taken different forms. And, and, uh, and if you track the segregating housing, the racial redlining that occurred in the 30s, and you, and you take those same maps, and then you overlay which communities are more prone to having more industrial pollution and health threats, the areas that are more prone to flooding, the, the areas that have more permitted facilities, uh, and the areas that, are, that have uh, uh, less green canopy, green space, and they are called urban heat islands, the areas that have fewer uh, grocery stores. This is real. And I think uh, the fact that TCEQ, uh, even to this date, does not acknowledge uh, the policies and practices that have that have been put in place over the decades, and how how when they uh, grant permits, and and oftentimes uh, those permits uh, get get approved, uh, and and it's almost as if somehow TCQ has never met a permit that it, that it didn't like or didn't say was approved. Just uh, 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 a week or so ago, uh, there was a permit application for an expansion of the Hawthorne uh, landfill in Carverdale in, in Northwest Houston. And that, that permit was being favored to be granted um, by TCEQ. But the, but the Carverdale residents and, and the, it, their allies uh, had, a, had a public, that was a public hearing uh, in 2022, in June. And a number of us testified. And I presented testimony uh, to to TC, TCQ uh, commissioners that said Carverdale had hosted involuntarily uh, a landfill. It was a, 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 a construction and debris landfill, CND landfill, type four landfill for 45 years, 45 years. And here this company wanted to get an expansion permit to extend it for another 46 years. So they're talking about 91 years for this community to have lived with a landfill. And we looked at the, the track record of permitting and of facilities across the state and across Houston metro area, particularly, 
And it seems that permit after permit had been granted by TCQ. And I asked the commissioners point blank, if 100 permits had been presented to you with all of the, the I's dotted and the T's crossed in terms of permit, uh, and if all those permits uh, of those applications were being proposed in black and brown communities, would anything on their radar be triggered to say, well, something is wrong? And the response was, we don't have anything that would, uh, that would somehow stop us from or from granting permits in black and brown community in perpetuity, and we, wouldn't, we would just have to grant the permits. And we said, well, isn't there a, a Civil Rights Act of 1964 that's supposed to uh, somehow prohibit discrimination and permit, you know, government agencies from taking federal funds and, and somehow discriminating? And they said that we would need a new law in Texas and that there's nothing that they, they could do. We said no to that. As a matter of fact, uh, because so much pressure was being placed by community organizations, by the, by the, by the Carverdale community and their allies, civil rights groups, uh, and others, that the company withdrew the application. Withdrew the application. Not TCEQ uh, looking at it and saying this is discrimination and that we will not grant this permit. So we, so TECQ, so Houston, we got a problem. And that the agency that's supposed to regulate uh, and enforce environmental protection doesn't see its mandate as in doing that in a non-discriminatory way. That's a problem. That's a major problem. So let's. I think that's a good segue to talking about Texas Southern University and the work you ha- have done and continue to do it at, at TSU. And I love the way you and, and others at TSU talk about the the community that that you have this this uh, community of academics that are in touch with and and working with folks in the community. Can you talk a little bit about your um, sort of conception of of the university and its partnership with communities? Yes. You know, the, the fact that this community model uh, was developed uh, and was actually it was born, developed, tested, uh, and deployed uh, in the 90s. And the, it's no accident that the first environmental justice centers at universities, all five of them were at HBCUs, Historically Black College and University. Uh, the, the Deep South Center uh, for Environmental Justice was at Xavier University. Uh, the, the Environmental Justice Resource Center was at Clark Atlanta University that I started. The, the Environmental Justice Clinic, legal clinic, was at Thurgood Marshall School of Law. There was an Environmental Justice Center at Hampton University and Environmental Justice Health Institute that was at Florida a University. Our, our centers were developed to be an anchor and a resource to communities that were on the front line. And we developed uh, uh, what's called, today, it's called uh, community-based participatory research. That's what they call it now, a research to action. That's what they call it now. But we didn't have a name for it. Our name was, our universities, because we were founded out of struggle. All black colleges and universities were founded out of struggle. Texas Southern University was founded out of struggle. Thurgood Marshall School of Law was founded because Heman Sweat, a black man, was not uh, allowed to go to the University of Texas. So, so we have a special mission, and that mission is service uh, in, in the pursuit of excellence and the pursuit of justice, equality, um, and fairness. So, so it's no accident uh, that I do what I do at Texas Southern University. Even though I've worked at University of California, at Berkeley, and Riverside, and UCLA, when I left the University of California, I went back to my alma mater, Atlanta University, Clark Atlanta University, and started the Environmental Justice Resource Center in 1994. So that's the, the that's the um, I guess the underpinnings of why we do what we do at Texas Southern University um, uh, in, the, in the Bullet Center for Environmental and Climate Justice. Now, I was doing this before, uh, b- before we had a center at TSU. I, I came back to uh, Houston in, 19, in 2011 as dean of the Barbara Jordan Mickey School of Public Affairs. I did that for five years. And then um, uh, we got a call 
uh, from a, um, a foundation that said, we want to give you some money for you to start a center. And we want the center named uh, uh, in your honor. And I said, okay. Uh, and so our center basically uh, uh, do the things that we were doing at uh, Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta, but on a more expansive basis. And the idea that you can do a lot with money, uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised how much you can do with money. And, and you can have good staff, uh, good graduate students, postdocs, good community university uh, partnerships, develop a consortium of HBCUs. We developed this consortium at HBCUs, and the anchor university is, is Texas Southern. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, in, in sort of like common language when people say, oh, that's that, that, well, that's just academic, right? It, in the, in the pejorative sense, it's like, well, that, that doesn't really have any connection to people's on the ground reality and what you're really trying to do. And I think in, in fairness, a lot of academics try to do this is connect your work to outcomes, to, to people's quality of life, which I think is, um, uh, in that context, let's talk a little bit about the the recent award uh, that TSU and the Bullard Center just got the the Thriving Communities uh, Award from EPA, the Environmental Grantmakers Award. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and and what that means for for the 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 people of Houston and for the I think for the region, right? It's a it's a regional grant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know the the concept of the Thriving Communities uh, Grantmakers Award is that. When we were working with the Biden administration, we were talking about how is it that can we get resources in the hands of, of organizations and develop these partnerships and build a capacity. And knowing that government applications for grants, it's so cumbersome, it's so complicated, it, it's so, I guess, uh, hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. the idea is how can you streamline a process, how can you place an organization or institution in the position of becoming a grant maker to work with communities that they have worked with for many years and decades and to show how we can get the kinds of transformative results and change. And so the, the EPA, uh, using the Inflation Reduction Act funds, uh, $600, uh, $600 million for this uh, grant makers uh, program, and each of the, the, the entities uh, would would get fifty million dollars to represent um, a grant maker and to make awards uh, in the regions. And so uh, TSU, the Bullet Center, applied for one of those uh, regional awards. We got it, and and we have partners with um, w with ACTS, which is a, a, a community based organization, environmental justice organization, in uh, in Pleasantville. Uh, we have uh, relationships with some of our other consortia organizations, the HBCU Climate Change Consortium and the Gulf Coast Consortium and the uh, National Black Environmental Justice Network. So the organizations and the networks uh, and the community-based organizations that we've been working with all along, we have uh, uh, partnered with them to assist us in, in trying to shape a grant-making program that can really get to the com organizations in the community that need it most. And it's a five-year program. Uh, it's substantial funds, you know, environment, there's never been a $50 million grant program uh, or no, 500, I'm sorry, $600 million grant programs for environmental justice. Never been anything like that. The Inflation Reduction Act provides lots of monies for that. And, and so it places, you know, our university and our center uh, in, a, in a role, a very responsible role of being able to... Um, Set a, a, a stand up, a grant making, uh, uh, a program, and to get the kinds of advisors, uh, reviewers, and to set up a, a streamlined application process similar to private foundations. Their applications is nothing like government, and and to work with um, the the Tic Tacs, the Thriving Communities Technical Assistance Centers, uh, and they're and they are all across the country. for Region Six. Uh, it's uh, New Mexico State University and Deep South Center uh, are the uh, are the um, the tic tacs for our our region. So Deep that South these, Center is in Louisiana, New, right? New Orleans. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, in Louisiana. Yeah. So so the idea that we'll be working together in partnerships and that organizations that are um, 
uh, uh, need technical assistance and support, we'll be applying to uh, the thriving communities technical assistance centers to get the kinds of of capacity and assistance in developing the proposals, et cetera. So it's a partnership kind of thing. And we have, uh, we've been allowed enough time in years, not a one-year grant, but we got five years to move this uh, into action. And, and, and our communities have been needing this, frontline communities have been needing this for decades. Yeah. And, uh, and this is the opportunity that uh, we see happening today. And we're, just uh, uh, proud and, and blessed that we are sitting in the position to make awards to well-deserved uh, organizations and institutions and, and groups that are out there doing fantastic work. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, there will be now grant opportunities that haven't been available on anywhere near this scale for, for instance, organizations that are doing work you know, around near the very same landfills we were talking about before, you know, still to this day cited predominantly in communities of color. You mentioned acts achieving community tasks successfully that if I'm not, if I'm not getting it mixed up is near the port, right? That's it's it. a, it's kind of focused on. Yes. So again, if you look at where the port is and the communities that are around the port, those are communities of color that have been subject to the pollution, the higher incidence of asthma and all sorts of things, right? The, the, the community, um, famously though, not famously enough, that was near the Union Pacific Rail Yard, right? The cancer cluster right there in Houston. These kinds of communities that just haven't had the, the kinds of resourcing that, that you know, commensurate with, with other parts of society now potentially will with, with your help. It's pretty exciting. Yes. So, so the idea of, of building the capacity, assisting in uh, the grant writing, and then building the kinds of, of uh, community organization infrastructure to manage the grants and to grow their programs, to lever leverage the resources. And we've worked with some of our organizations for a decade, like Axe, for example. And Axe has been able to leverage a uh, private foundation, apply for EPA grants, get monitoring grants. This program uh, that we that we will be making grants for include a number of those kinds of activities in terms of community monitoring programs, uh, looking at issues around clean energy, issues around health assessments. Uh, you're talking about uh, workforce development, training. I mean, the idea that we have a lot of opportunities to fill those gaps and for those organizations that can access this federal uh, grant making uh, a pot of money can also uh, uh, build their capacity in a way to also apply for these foundation grants that are now being creating these um, funding hubs to work uh, public private uh, partnership kinds of funding. So, so there's a this is exciting times. We had we didn't have anything like this in the seventies in Houston and all the eighties or the nineties. And so this is uh, this 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 is an opportunity to grow young people in terms of uh, um, mentoring programs for, uh, for uh, developing climate and environmental uh, justice core uh, opportunities for high school kids uh, and, to, and for college students, internships. I mean, there's a lot of, of need uh, that's there that, that were under-resourced and underserved. Now, it sounds like a lot of money, but when you look at it, uh, it's still not enough given the, the size of the challenges that face many of our communities, whether it's dealing with transportation or dealing with housing, uh, dealing with water issues, infrastructure issues, dealing with flooding. I mean, when we talk about these issues, all those issues converge. As we define the environment, the environment is everything. Where we live, work, play, learn, worship, as well as the physical and natural world. Many of our communities, there's no green space. There's no tree canopy. It, it's hot in those neighborhoods. So we mean, so there are all kinds of opportunities to address those issues. Some of our neighborhoods, it, it's prone to flooding. So we have to make sure we start building uh, and making our communities more climate resilient. It's cold right now. And so it means that we have to plan for these cold spells and have these heating, you know, these heating stations. And when it gets so hot, 
cooling stations, and we have to build for climate resilience hubs in neighborhoods. That's money for that, for organizations that want to develop that in partnerships with uh, city, county, government. So that's what we are, are looking to have these programs as they stand up um, in terms of the regions, in terms of Region 6, but also their national programs uh, that's funded under this programs where uh, the, the national programs got $100 million. So there are other programs where people, organizations can apply in that big pool of money, that $100 million. So, so that's the kind of, um, I guess, opportunity that we will be advertising, that we'll be speaking to uh, get people, organizations, uh, local city governments to understand in terms of our, our school boards, uh, in terms of the, the school infrastructure, yes, money to implement that, in terms of clean buses, you know, in terms of getting away from this, in terms of the port, you know, getting uh, our ports cleaned up so we're moving away from the dirty diesel and getting electrifying, you know, those kinds of uh, facilities as well as uh, vehicles. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about, uh, environmental, climate, energy, justice. So, so exciting. There's so much there. Uh, so I, where, where I think I want to go next, cause I think you're right. Like the, the, the $50 million over five years, it's a lot of money. It could do a lot of good, but to be successful, it's going to have to leverage other things going on in the world, right? Not it's certainly other grant sources, but also just things happening in the, in the market, right? Happening in, in energy markets, happening with um, new technologies that are yeah. coming in, right? So as we look at these compounding threats from climate change. Obviously the experience of of Harvey was was devastating for the for the Houston area. Not just Houston, Beaumont, Port Arthur, you know, so on and so forth. Uh the experience of, of winter storm Uri, um, devastating. We just continue to see these trauma upon trauma, these 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 um climate impacts that are that are sort of like added one on top of the other. And we also are in and 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 um this will be a subject of this of many episodes of this podcast, we're seeing sort of this explosion of um, small resources, right? Solar, storage, energy efficiency that can be cited at, you were talking about schools, school districts are great places to, to put solar and storage that people have a place to go if the power goes out or if there's a hurricane or whatever it might be churches and, and synagogues and mosques and in, in people's individual homes. But as you know, and I'd love for you to talk about this a bit, if we aren't very intentional about how the energy transition happens, we will almost certainly repeat the patterns of the past. It is about communities of color, but it's not just about communities of color. It's a broader issue um, about people who are poor to middle income not being able to access the technologies that others are. So, uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about the energy transition and where its overlap, particularly these distributed resources and how those can provide resilience and where the intersection with, with your work uh, on environmental justice is? Yes, yes. If we look at the... Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is a $369 billion uh, uh, initiative, the largest climate uh, program funding in, in history of the U.S. And there's $60 billion in that uh, uh, carved out for environmental justice, another $60 billion for clean energy transition. Now, so when we talk about uh, clean energy uh, renewables and the transition, we have to place justice at the center. Because, as you said, uh, we don't want to reproduce this old system where, where you have this inequity. Uh, and so that means that we have to uh, plan for uh, and we have to be intentional about this work. Uh, it, uh, for example, uh, there was a Solar for All um, uh, 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 grant that came out um, uh, for, uh, for uh, organizations to apply for. And it meant that financial institutions uh, pretty much had to uh, be the uh, the the person or the organization applying for it. This is Dr. Bully. This is for like the for the green bank uh, part of the greenhouse gas reduction. Yes, fund. the green yeah. bank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Green, that's right, greenhouse gas reduction fund. 
and and it was um, uh, sent out, and then uh, organizations would apply. Uh, the Bullet Center uh, at Texas Southern partnered with uh, the the Green Fund of Texas, the Green Bank of Texas, uh, and applied for uh, the Green Fund of Texas applied as the uh, as the organization applying for the for the grant two hundred fifty million dollars. Uh, now we don't know if we're going to get it, but the idea was is that we have uh, a partnership with um, with the Green Fund of Texas, and and the fact that that relationship uh, is one that's real. And in turn, what we were proposing is to look at our current infrastructure uh, working in the Gulf Coast and the organizations that we work with and our HBCUs and, uh, and using our consortium concept to have our HBCU consortia and the organizations, the community-based organizations in the cities that we are found to be the, the framework for, for building out uh, this clean energy transition uh, in terms of that particular process. We, and one of, the, one of the pilot projects that we're talking about is developing a pilot uh, between uh, Texas Southern University and CUNY Homes, which is a public housing development that's next door to, 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 to TSU, and uh, the, the uh, community centers in Third Ward, uh, the elementary schools, et cetera, to have that as um, a project to be a microgrid that would uh, provide, provide solar for the campus, the, the public housing development, uh, uh, community center, and the schools to work in partnership. So that means the Houston Housing Authority, uh, the, the HISD, uh, and some of the community centers that's, uh, that, that the city the I and, and there and there are there are examples in other parts of the country that have used that model, uh, such as the um, um, the the Bronzeville uh, community uh, microgrid in Chicago, uh, and there's uh, other projects in California, uh, and there's of course uh, microgrid at University of Texas in Austin. The idea is that we don't have to invent the wheel, reinvent the wheel, but we do have to show that there's community involvement that there's a project that could be a ready project. Uh, and again, if we get the grant, uh, that would be a one project, a pilot that could show how this could be transported in other places in our region, in the Gulf Coast, to do something like this. Uh, and then there are other examples that we were talking about rolling out, but we need something that could show quickly. Texas Southern University has a a memorandum of understanding MOU with uh, Brookhaven Lab, which is in New York, which is the DOE lab, which has expertise in doing something like that. So we have all the pieces in place to work on something like that. And we have a relationship with National Argonne Lab through our HBCU Climate Change Consortium. So it means that, that uh, there are opportunities to do uh, something like this with our students, with our universities, in terms of saving uh, money. The, 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 one of the largest uh, expenses on not just HBCUs, but college campuses, uh, is utilities. And so if we can get that down, that means the money that would be spent on utilities paying out could go to scholarships or could go to other kinds of, of, um, of um, uh, enhancements. Yeah. And, you know, so um, as, as we're talking just, just a day or two ago, I put the first episode of Energy Capital out as with the former commissioner of the Public Utility Commission, Will, Will McAdams. And he talked a lot about, our, our conversation was a lot about these distributed energy resources. I think, Dr. Bullard, this is a really interesting sort of like test case for people we can see hopefully the the broader public and and policymakers of all different kinds can can hopefully understand this that that what you're talking about is very good for those communities that will get the benefits directly right the churches the school district you're talking about third ward it's also good for everybody because the more of these resources we have cited locally the more resilient and reliable the grid is for everybody I really love um, Heather McGee's book, The Sum of Us, which, you know, really talks about how 
racism and 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 let's just say the outcomes of racism right not i'm not talking about somebody's individual attitudes but the right. but the systems that are a legacy of slavery and jim crow which again as we talked about earlier weren't that long ago and the impacts are still with us hurt everybody and it, as we put these kinds of programs into place and as we're dealing with people's high energy bills and the lack of reliability or resiliency, it definitely will benefit those communities and it will benefit the entire state of Texas as well. Um, it was a little bit of a speech, but if you want to add to it, please do. <laughs> Any no, thoughts you want no. to add to that? Yeah, no, no you're exactly right. You know, the, the, the whole idea is that when we uh, lift those who are have experienced the, the greatest amount of inequity on the bottom, and then we talk about bringing them uh, into this whole uh, energy, environmental, health, equity, economic justice. Uh, we're talking about uh, basically making our society much more livable for everybody. When we talk about using uh, electrifying uh, school buses and getting our schools to become green schools, the kids learn. All kinds of studies show that as, as you start greening the schools, the kids learn. And we start reducing the pollution, kids learn better. And so as we start building out, you know, uh, uh, trees and green canopy and parks and green space and nature, kids learn. I mean, it, it has a lot of impacts in, in when we talk about uh, behavioral issues in terms of, of, of calming uh, kids down, but also reducing crime. We have, I'm a sociologist, and we have lots of data on this so, so that we save lives, we make communities healthier, healthier, and we make for a much more secure America. So it's the best interest of, of uh, the whole country to do this now and to do it right and to make sure that those benefits accrue uh, to those who uh, historically have been left out and left behind and also make sure that we uh, uh, look to the future in terms of uh, becoming a much more just, fair, and equitable society. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and it's ultimately not a zero-sum game. I think that's what Heather McGee's point of the sum of us is, is actually these things are additive. If 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 um, uh, Third Ward is doing better, that doesn't take away from anybody else. Right. To the contrary, that actually makes everybody else stronger too. I I don't know. Dare to dream. I hope we're going to be able to 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 understand this as as a society. I want to just ask you about something before before we end. Um, and I, and I think this is this is important as as we go forward and as we are going to continue to talk about environmental justice and environmental racism, we have to to be able to not only solve that problem, which needs to be solved, not that it will ever be solved. We need to continue to 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 get better and better at it, but also because so many of our problems as society are are are, are bound up in this, right? How we talk about it is important, and how we bring people in is important. There was a part in um, Clint Smith's brilliant book, How the, How the Word is Passed, where he talks about when people challenge, he was talking about Thomas Jefferson, and when you, you know, bring up the fact that Thomas Jefferson owned a lot of slaves, that, and, and you bring up the, the inherent racism of that, he says, you're in fact challenging not just Jefferson, but the conception of themselves, people's conceptions of themselves. So when we talk about environmental racism and you know, we hear somebody like Chairman Nearman say, I don't know what to do with that, I think a lot of times, and it's not just him, I don't want to, I don't want to pick on Chairman Nearman. I think there's a lot of people that have this reaction that's like, well, I'm not a part of that. I didn't do that. It's not my fault. You're challenging their identity. You're, you're, you're not doing this. But the way people hear it, right, is you're calling me racist. That, of course, is not what's happening. But, but how, do we, how do we deal with that to try to bring more people into this as opposed to sort of drawing, you know, starker dividing lines between people? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's something that, uh, that uh, those of us who've worked on these issues for decades have been uh, trying to meet this challenge. And, and, and early on, people would say, I, oh, I didn't own any slaves. I would say, well, that's not what we're talking about. 
Uh, I'm not a racist. That's not what we're talking about. There are institutional and structural uh, barriers that somehow we must break, break those, those, those artificial walls down so that uh, we can see clearly. And I, the idea that, that the understanding that the quest for justice that we're talking about is, is not a sprint. I mean, it's a marathon. And as a matter of fact, it's a race that doesn't exist, a marathon relay. You know, it's like you run your 26.2 miles and then you pass the baton to the next generation to run the 26.2, but you don't stop. You don't just pass the baton and then sit down. You have to cheer the person on, be a mentor, and uh, as I said, uh, a rally uh, a cheerleader, all of that, to say that we must uh, get to this finish line in a way that we bring everybody uh, uh, to clarity about what uh, these artificial barriers is doing in terms of holding us back, not releasing uh, the, the greatest energy in terms of our minds uh, and thinking about what could be and uh, keeping us from reaching that, you know, that, uh, that whole idea and justice for all. And, and again, uh, some people will, will see this as a, not a message just somehow directed at them, calling them a racist, or somehow saying, well, uh, uh, your white privilege uh, is, is somehow uh, stopping me from getting this. And I think looking beyond that personal individual, but looking at the collective. And, and that's how we have been trying, to, uh, uh, our movement has, has grown uh, as our uh, ideas of who, uh, who gets the benefits from this. We all get the benefits in the end. It's just that some people may not realize that, that they're getting a benefit from, from regulations that make our air cleaner because there's no white air, no Hispanic air, no black air. There's air. And, and most of us don't uh, uh, say we're going to uh, stop breathing next Wednesday. We have to breathe air, drink water, and eat food, and we have to fight to make sure that it's all safe uh, uh, for everyone. Now, that's how I see it, and that's what's kept me going. Yeah, I hear you. And, and that's a perfect example because if we're able to reduce pollution, like you said, that air doesn't just stay in one place. It is, it is more concentrated. It more impacts communities of color, for instance, near the port, but it doesn't just stay there. It drifts over to, to West Houston and North Houston and, and you know everywhere else around the region. So, so we all benefit from, from cleaning up. Just the, the, the last thought, um, just to sort of, um, uh, you know, end, end on, on this note, um, we're, we're recording just a couple days after uh, Martin Luther King Day. Um, I, I particularly love his Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community. And he writes in there, and I think this is just as true today as it was in 1967 when he wrote it, the racism of today is real but the democratic spirit that has always faced it is equally real. Uh, do you, are you, what, what is your outlook? Do you, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that that, that is still true today? And, and, and do you kind of have hope that there, that like you said, with that marathon, we're, we're passing the baton. Are we, are, are we bending that arc towards justice? Is it happening? <laughs> yeah, I think our movement uh, is bending that arc. Uh, it's, it's still long. And I think the idea of, of the generational mobilization, intergenerational mobilization, I think young, I'm a boomer, proud of it, still standing, still fighting. But uh, millennials and Gen Xs and Zoomers, they outnumber my generation. And they are much more inclined to want to get it right and dismantle some of those artificial barriers that's holding us back as a people uh, and as a nation. And so I'm optimistic. I think we have to keep fighting. We have to understand that environmental justice and energy justice, transportation justice, racial justice, and justice for all also means saving our democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically fighting for the right to vote uh, and the right to have our votes count. And that voting, is that, that's one of the pillars of a democracy. And if we lose that, we lose a whole lot. And so it's, you know, our justice movement is bound up in 
civil rights and human rights. And so we just have to fight for those rights and, and not let anyone or any organization somehow take it away from us or convince us somehow that that's not important. It's very important. My grandmother knew that. And when she, when she dressed up in her Sunday go meeting clothes and voted and voted Republican because the Republican Party back then was uh, much more progressive than the Dixiecrat Democratic Party. The, the courage of that action is almost un, unfathomable. And I see that courage, you know, in you. It's, it's, it's been an incredible honor to, to talk to you. Congratulations on the, all the success with, with the Bullard Center, having your name on there. Well, well deserved. And thanks for all you've done over 40 years. Here's hoping you got, you got 40 more. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I, you, 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 you look like you're like, uh, you know, uh, younger than me. And so I, hopefully that you could, you continue to carry this torch forward. And I know you're, you're handing it off to a lot of younger people at TSU as you're continuing to do the work yourself, looking forward to, to seeing what you, what you continue to do. And, and thank you for all your, you've done and continue to do. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the energy capital podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please like, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, have a great day.